Welcome to Step Into the Story. Incredible conversations of how the Bible changes lives, changes families, and changes communities across the globe. And here's your host, Phil Tuttle of Walk Through the Bible. Welcome to Step Into the Story. Each time we get together, we have a conversation with a man or woman, and we explore the intersection of their story and God's story. And I cannot tell you how much I've been looking forward to today's conversation because there really is just a a fascinating story on a human level, but then to see that story not just intersected and glance off by God's story, but but really find its true meaning and significance in God's story. And um, I'm thrilled with today's guest, Coach Mark Richt. Mark, thank you for being our guest here today on Step Into the Story. Thank you, Phil. I'm looking forward to it. Well, for those of you who are football fans, uh, Mark Rick needs no introduction. But the exciting thing is, is today's conversation, sure, we'll talk some football, but it's, it's about a whole lot more than football. And, um, you know, Mark, your, your career could be summarized pretty quickly. This is the outfacing public part of it. You know, long-term assistant coach in a variety of roles at, at Florida State, um, broken up in the middle by um, a quick time as an offensive coordinator at East Carolina, and then 15 years as head coach of our own University of Georgia Bulldogs right here in the great state of Georgia, um, followed by three years back at your alma mater, the University of Miami Hurricanes as head coach there also. Um, Mark, in, in preparation for this conversation, I read your new book that's entitled um, Make the Call. And I just need to say to you that, that you and Lawrence Kimbrough, who, who helped you put it together, um, it was not what I expected. I, I thought I knew your story pretty well. I knew that you're a committed Christ follower as, as well as a great coach and all that. But I, I expected to learn a little bit more about you. I learned a ton more about you. I guess that's not too surprising. But the, the surprise to me was how much your book taught me about myself and um, just leadership in general. So I just want to say, first of all, thank you uh, for that your new book, Make the Call. Um, how did you get the idea for that particular project? Right. Well, uh, I was approached about writing a book back when I was head coach of Georgia, and I thought it was a good idea for some uh, for some crazy reason. Uh, it's really not time to write a book when you're the head coach <laughs> at a major university. And so I, I felt like, oh, I got, a, I got about a month in the summer. I could really dive into this thing. If we can knock it out, let's do it. Well, we, we got to uh, the beginning of two days had already started. And we were barely on chapter one. Oh, and no I way. said, yeah, I said, there's, I said, there's no way we're going to, as a matter of fact, I read the uh, chapter one, uh, rough draft. I said, this is boring. This is no good. I don't like it. And we shut it down. Uh, then, you know, after I retired from coaching, uh, my uh, literary agent got up with me and said, Hey, let's, let's, let's do that book. What do you think? I go, well, I don't know. I'll think about it. And then I'm thinking if I'm going to write a book, I might better do it quick. Cause you never know what tomorrow will bring. So, and the funny thing about the title, you know, I was working with my, uh, my wife and my brother-in-law and his wife about a title and we came up with make the call and it's kind of a play on words where 
you know, coach, if you're calling plays in the game, you're making a call every 40 seconds. Yeah. You know, as a head coach, you're making calls in recruiting and discipline and, you know, just so many things that surround your program. Uh, but, you know, you make calls in life. Uh, and really making calls is, is really just making decisions. And so, you know, the goal of this book is to let people get behind the scenes on a lot of decisions I made in, in football and, and family and faith. But also uh, the reader will be challenged to make the biggest call of all in their, in their lives uh, before the book is over. Yeah. Well, let's, we're getting ahead of, of ourselves a little bit. Um, let's, let's, let's go back to your growing up years. I know that um, you were raised in Omaha, Nebraska, which is a, a special place for me, has been in recent years. Our, our son, Philip, um, was a Chick-fil-A operator there for a couple of years, transferred to a new Chick-fil-A in the west suburbs of Illinois, where his wife and in-laws are from. Um, still too far from Atlanta, but right. um, easier to get to than Omaha. But um, what a what a wonderful community there there in Omaha. Um, sketch out for us kind of the the early years of your life, a little bit about your family, if you would. Sure. Um, Mom and Dad uh, actually met. Uh, they were actually living in the same neighborhood as children and went to the same high school and got married. They're from Omaha as well, and. Uh, so we had, there's four kids born in Omaha, and then my dad eventually got transferred to IBM, got a job at IBM uh, in 1973 in Boca Raton, Florida. And so he had to choose between uh, Boca Raton, Florida, and Poughkeepsie, New York, so that was pretty easy to make that call. <laughs> but uh, so he's a computer programmer, and uh, so we were, in, we were in Broomfield, Colorado, which is right in between Denver and Boulder. And then the fifth child was born. So we had, I had my older brother, Lou, myself, my brother, Craig, and then uh, Mickey, Michelle. You know, uh, about every two years, they, a kid popped out. <laughs> good Catholic family. And then uh, eventually, I think it was about four years later, Mickey or Nicole was born uh, in Colorado. So we had, there's five kids. Uh, I was number two, three boys, and then my two sisters on the tail end. Wow. So is that where you learned to compete originally? Yeah, compete for food, compete for a lot of things. <laughs> uh, you know, it was, you know, sports really was it for me. Uh, it was, you know, I think everybody wants to feel good about themselves and that they're good at something and people acknowledge that it makes you, it makes you feel good. It makes you want to do it more. And that was sports for me. It really didn't matter what kind of ball. I can remember, you know, my dad coming home from work and I'd have his glove and my glove and, and a baseball. And I'd just beg him to play catch before he even got in the house. And that's kind of how I connected with my dad uh, through sports. And so I think that was probably an added layer to why I loved it. Mm-hmm. Wow. Hey, what's your, what's your feeling? I know you played multiple sports growing up. What's your... What's your feeling about just how how early kids are pushed to to pick right. one sport um, versus what's what's your view of that? Right, uh, I think postpone it as long as possible. Um, personally, I mean, I like I know a lot of families feel like you know, we got to try to sell, you know pave the way for a scholarship one day in athletics and what's what's their best sport, what's their best chance. 
And and sometimes I think it, it begins to take the fun out of the sport. And we played sports back in our day. I mean, I lived across the street from Cole Elementary School. And all we had was a playground across the street and a big open field. And, uh, and then in the, in the back of the school, we had basketball goals and four square things, you know, yeah. on the ground. You know, so we just played. We just played sports every, every day. And I think what's happening now, I think parents are afraid to just say, go outside and play and come back when the streetlights come on. So it, to a certain degree, you know, parents feel like they need organized sports to uh, for their kids to play. And, and sadly, it's some of it is just the fear of letting your kids run, run around the neighborhood by themselves. Yeah. So I, I understand that part. But um, if, if you just say, hey, this is your sport, and, and it's hard for an eight-year-old to figure out what they want to do. <laughs> yeah, and you might look sure. at you, you might look at a skill set and say, "Hey, golf is it." But um, you know, I, I would put it off as long as possible. It's just so important to experience all the sports and to experience being on a team. I think there's something about uh, learning how to cooperate with people and and you know work towards the same goal that everybody wants. It's, it's very important, and then. You learn with you learn to deal with some disappointments too, and you get to overcome adversity through sport rather than you know things in life that are coming down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, so, so out of high school, yeah. um, recruited by a number of schools, um, ended up choosing University of Miami, uh, playing for Howard Schellenberger. Um, uh, Coach, you this I did not know about you till till I read your book. You. Um, have always had an amazing ability to attract talent. What I didn't realize was that actually started during your playing career. Um, you right. ended up being backup to um, some unbelievably talented quarterbacks. Um, right. Talk to me a little bit about the the frustration of that, both right. in college and then um, trying to launch your own pro career in well, the NFL. Right. Through high school, um, actually my, my high school coach, Roger Coffee, who I love dearly he's since passed away, but, uh, he did, he did ask me to play one sport, but that was in the 10th grade. He said, if you want to be my quarterback, I need you to focus on just one sport. But if you do that, uh, you know, you'll get a scholarship, you know, so he promised me that I bought into it and did it. And, uh, he, he really taught me how to play the position of quarterback. I ended up being first team all state and all kind of great things. And you know, you said got recruited. Uh, so I decided to go to Miami because coach Saban, who was there actually when I was being recruited and it wasn't Nick Saban, it was Lou Saban. Uh, he had convinced me that I was going to be the guy that kind of saved the program. So mm-hmm. I'll never forget being in his office and uh, looking in the Miami Herald at the commitments. And I was looking at uh, this one commitment. And I said, uh, tell me about this guy named Mike Rodriguez. It says quarterback slash defensive back next to his name. What's up with him? I thought I was the guy. I thought I was the guy. And he said, "I oh, don't worry about that. He's a he's a defensive back." And <laughs> as it turned out, he was. A, it turned out he was a quarterback. But anyway, I go. Well, what about this other name, Jim Kelly from East Brady, Pennsylvania? It says quarterback with no slash by his name. Yeah, nobody's uh, ever heard of him. I mean, yeah, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, what's up with this? And he says, hey, Mark, someone's got to back you up. And I said, good thinking, Coach. That's how uh, naive I was back in the day. But 
so I had my plan to uh, be an all, you know, start as a freshman, be an All-American my sophomore year, win the Heisman my third year, and go pro. I mean, that was my that was my plan. But the only problem was Jim Kelly started to live my life for me, <laughs> and uh, it got well. You know, I just never would have dreamed to do some of the things I did in my college days. But once, you know, if your identity is in sport. If your total identity is in being a quarterback like it was for me, when that went down the drain or was going down the drain, my life went down the drain. Mm. And that's why it's just so important not to not to become what we do. And a lot of times we, we identify with what we do more than who we are in Christ and that's that's problematic. Mm. Yeah, that that pattern of um getting the backup really awesome quarterbacks continued. Um, as you were um, looking well, yeah, to get go, established in the NFL as well. Right. I get a free agent shot with the Denver Broncos. I signed my contract in Denver. I'm supposed to meet Dan Reeves, the head coach, the next day. And I go after dinner, after signing my contract, I go in the hotel room and there's a news flash. John Elway just got traded from the Colts <laughs> to the Denver Broncos. And I was trying to get out of my contract and all that stuff. And So anyway, I, I got a chance to... Uh, compete with John Elway for a week. <laughs> I was the, I was the first guy to cut that camp. Uh so uh then the then the next year, you know, after a few odd jobs, uh ballet and cars uh as one of them, I was in such good shape chasing cars I said, I gotta try out again. And uh, so I got a shot with the Miami Dolphins. And I lasted a month. Uh, I went in my I went into the locker uh, when I first got there, and they had locker number nine, which was my college number, it had my name on it. Sweet. Now, was it, it was on a it was, yeah, it was on a piece of tape and magic marker, but <laughs> it still was it was there. I'm thinking, respect, and then I kept looking down the line. They had the lockers in alphabetical uh, numerical order. So I look at ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. I see Dan Marino. Oh man! And uh, so uh, you know, my days were numbered there too. So even before you were. Uh you know, assigned the job of recruiting. You were, you were pretty fantastic at that, even though it wasn't great for <laughs> your own career. Do you, I mean, so there was disappointment in that, but oh, yeah. how, how early did, was the idea that um, maybe I'll be a coach? How, how did that come about? Yeah. Well, it's kind of a sad story. I got a job after getting cut with Denver as a bartender. And, uh, so I'm tending bar and trying to make these fancy drinks that I'd never heard of and uh, not doing a very good job of it, plus trying to watch football games on the TV monitors while I was at work. So my, my manager didn't like that much. He said, hey, look, you sit on the other side of the bar and uh, have yourself a beer, whatever you want to do, watch these games, and then when we close up, I got another job for you. So he uh, wanted me to clean the bar after, after hours. So I was, the last job I had before I coached, you know, I'm I'm kind of shining the brass rails uh, of the bar, and I'm thinking surely I could do something else. And then I was like, well, may- maybe I could coach. So that's when I uh, grabbed this uh, blue book of college athletics, they called it, and looked up about five to ten schools that I thought I might like to coach at. I mean, I'm so naive; it was just crazy. I did get a couple of letters of recommendation. Uh, and it, it, it turned out I got a chance to be a graduate assistant. I at first got a, uh, I got, uh, 
accepted a job at LSU as a graduate assistant coach mm. to uh, to help coach the quarterback. And the night before, I uh, got in my U-Haul that was already packed, set to go to Baton Rouge. I got a call from none other than Coach Bobby Bowden at Florida State. Mm. And he offered me a job as a graduate assistant coach, not only to help, I was going to help coach the quarterbacks, but I was going to help him coach the quarterbacks, not a position coach. Yeah. And so it was an offer I couldn't refuse. And uh, thankfully, uh, he liked what he saw early on. And he quit coming. To, he, he came to one quarterback meeting with me. He watched, kind of observed me at the first practice, and he never came back. Wow. So I'm a graduate assistant coach, 25 years old, coaching quarterbacks at you know, a power five university. I don't know if we called them power fives back then, but it was an amazing was, opportunity. Sure. Yeah. So that started a, a long-term relationship, not only with FSU, but, but specifically with coach Bowden. And I know you, right. you did a couple of different stints there, 14 years altogether, a uh, grad assistant, and then eventually officially QB coach and, and then offensive coordinator. Um, I know, I knew Bobby Bowden was, in many ways for you, a mentor, I guess we didn't call them mentors back then, but um, had a huge impact on your life. What are a couple of the biggest life lessons you feel like you learned from Coach Bowden? Well, you know, everyone will say that Coach Bowden was about football and, you know, faith and family. And then really in in order, it's faith, family, and football. And, um, a lot of guys say that that's what they're about, but Coach Bowden truly was about that. He he loved God number one above all and wanted to serve him uh, the best that he could. And you know, number two, he loved his family. And you know, then then football came. So he, he truly had his priorities in order, and uh, and and I loved him for that. Uh, but the biggest influence, or I guess the biggest thing that happened in my life under his uh, guidance was uh, after the death of a player. Unfortunately, is my second year as a graduate assistant. Was, we had an open date early in the year, and uh, Coach Bound allowed the players to go home if they wanted to. Some chose to go, and some stayed in, in town. And the ones that stayed in town went to an on-campus party. Somebody pulls the fire alarm. Everybody's out in the parking lot. There's a local kid coming through with his car. Almost hits one of our players. Pablo Lopez, a big offensive tackle, 6'5", 285, you know, uh, kid of Cuban descent, kind of a jokester. Pablo was a, he was kind of a hard dude, too. He was a tough kid. And uh, so he didn't like what happened and got in the driver's side window and kind of cursed this kid out and basically hurt his pride in front of his buddies who were in the car with him. So he knew he couldn't jump out of the car and physically whip Pablo. So he went home, got a sawed-off shotgun, brought it back to the party. Long story short, he uh, there's a confrontation. Pablo's out there walking towards him. He pulls the gun out. Pablo keeps walking, calls his bluff, says, "You're not, you're not going to shoot me, bro." And uh, the kid panicked, pulled the trigger, and Pablo died. So the next day uh, was a was a scheduled meeting on a Sunday anyway to get everybody back in town from the open date. But it became much more than that. Coach Bowden addressed the team, and he just said, man, I, I don't know where Pablo is right now. I don't know where he'll spend eternity. 
I don't know where he was in his faith. And he said, there's a God, you know, God created you. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. And he wants you to live, in, you know, eventually uh, in eternity with him in heaven. And he said, man, but the problem is the, the standard for heaven is perfection. And we're, none of us are perfect. When Adam sinned, sin ended all man. And we have, we just, we take the Ten Commandments, the Ten Rules to live by, and if you obey them, you get to go heaven. You get to go to heaven. But the Ten Commandments are there to show us we were incapable of perfection. We're incapable of obeying them, and we need a Savior, and that's why He gave us Jesus. Mm. And He kind, of, He kind of just was preaching the gospel to the to the boys. And then you know, there's an empty seat because everybody had assigned seats, and He pointed to the seat that Pablo used to sit in. And he said, man, you guys are 18 to 22 years old. You think you're going to live forever. It's like Pablo thought he was going to live forever. And now he's gone. He said, if that was you last night, instead of Pablo, you know where you'd spend eternity. Mm. And he's talking to the players. Well, I'm in the back of the room. You know, I had taken a role, and I was kind of supposed to watch out for the anybody in the media hanging around and all that kind of thing. Well, he's speaking to the boys, and he, but the Holy Spirit speaking to me and some seeds that were planted back in college by a teammate of mine, a guy named John Peasley, a guy that was looking for a fight, looking to get drunk until one summer we ended up spending time together. And I'm thinking we're going to have this a wild summer because I started doing all the crazy things. And when Jim started living my life, <laughs> you know, I started doing stupid stuff. And so I thought we were going to have one wild summer. And, and he was, he came back from a short vacation with this piece about him, I was like, what in the world happened to you, man? He said, I, I, I became a Christian. And so he, he began to explain to me what what was going on with, with him. And uh, and I got attracted to that. I was like, man, I need that. Mm. But then I was worried about my roommates, my other roommates, my girlfriend. I was worried about being a hypocrite, thinking, man, if I become a Christian, I got to be perfect. I could never sin again. I had a took inventory of my sin, and I'm like, I think I could stop this sin, and I'm not sure about this one, and I know I'm not stopping this sin anytime soon. And I also thought, you know, gosh, if I become a Christian, God might send me on a mission trip, and I'll never come back. Yeah. You know, and I still wanted to do what I... Yeah. Yeah, you know, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. So I I postponed that decision, and by the grace of God, lived long enough for Coach to preach the gospel to the team and for me to hear it. Well, anyway, the next day after he talked to the team, I knocked on his door and he, he said, come on in, buddy. And he calls you buddy when you forget your name sometimes. But <laughs> so anyway, I, uh, I go in the office and say, coach, I know you were talking to the players, but I need, I need Jesus. And so I prayed to receive Christ right there in the office. And uh, things changed dramatically for me. I, I became the new creation in Christ. That sin nature I had at birth, when Adam sinned, and they, we have that sin nature, the Adamic nature, they call it, that was eradicated, crucified with Christ. And I became this new creation, and this peace that my buddy John had, I all of a sudden had. And all of a sudden, I went from this self-centered guy to a guy that wanted to please God. That was my. I had a new goal, one goal, try to live a life that would be pleasing to God. And a uh, very simple goal. Not necessarily an easy goal, but it, it, my life, it just, it's how I tried to operate it ever since. 
Mm. Well, your life, like many of our lives, splits um, before Christ and after Christ. And so much more to talk about. Um, we're going to take a quick break right now. You know, Coach, what you're describing is exactly why our ministry, Walk Through the Bible, exists, to draw people into that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And um, here's, a, here's a resource that, that we've developed at Walk Through the Bible that I, I think a lot of people will find helps move them down the field in terms of their relationship with Christ. Listen to this, and we'll be back just in a minute or so, and we'll continue our conversation with Coach Mark Richt. Want to read through the Bible in one year with us? The Daily Walk Bible is designed to guide you through your daily reading of Scripture, taking you from Genesis to Revelation in the span of one year. Each day's reading includes several chapters of Scripture, an overview to give you a bird's-eye view of the day's reading, an insight offering an interesting fact from the day's reading, and My Daily Walk, a short devotion to help you reflect on and apply a specific insight from the day's reading. Every seventh day offers a pause on the journey as you are invited to look back over the readings from the previous week, look up to God, and look ahead to the reading to come. This is the Bible reading plan that will get you through Leviticus. To find out more about the Daily Walk Bible and our other Daily Walk resources, go to walkthrough.org slash dailywalk. That's W-A-L-K. T-H-R-U dot O-R-G slash Daily Walk. Read through the Bible with us in 2022. Well, welcome back to Step Into the Story and this just fascinating conversation with Coach Mark Richt. And um, just heard the story, um, Coach, of, of how you came to know Jesus as your Savior. Um, it, it's not like God hadn't been after you for a while with your friend John Peasley, and, and even back to high school with Coach Coffey. Um, I thought it was fascinating in your book when you dodged his question about, do you believe in God? And you're like, well, I believe in football. And uh, yeah. <laughs> thank- I thought he was going to be proud of me, but uh, I think he felt like he created a monster uh, <laughs> with the love of football over God. But that's where I was back then. Yeah, at least it was honest response. You know, so so there you are at FSU, and it's also during that time that you meet a young woman named Catherine. Um, right. Tell tell us about your first your first meeting, your first conversation right. with her. Was it love at first sight? Was it mutual? Um, how did that right. develop? Well, first of all, if you read Wikipedia, it says she was a cheerleader at Florida State, but she was not a cheerleader. <laughs> but she was roommates. Of my roommate, I had a roommate named Jay Perkins, another fellow graduate assistant, and uh, he was dating Liz then Liz Ward, and uh, that was her main name. Uh, we sometimes Jay would be with Liz, and I'd be with both of them hanging out. And one day I said, "Man, I need to meet a nice girl." So, so Liz like took it from there and said, "Oh my God, I know this one girl. She's so elegant, and this that, and the other." It was a roommate, then Kathy. I've been calling my wife Catherine now, but back then we called her Kathy. And um, so, so she wanted us to meet. So we decided to go on a blind date, and uh, we're going to have a movie and a dinner, dinner and a movie. So the girls are going to be in charge of dinner, and we're going to be in charge of the movie. And, of course, we picked Animal House 
<laughs> great choice great choice oh my gosh i can't even believe that but uh we so we picked that and uh actually met her on accident we were trying to get some money out of a money machine at a, at a public <laughs> grocery store and they were they were shopping for dinner we ran into each other when uh, she wasn't ready and i wasn't ready so it was kind of an awkward hello but um you know what happened to us is we became best friends because everybody hung out together. We were all, you know, my roommate, her roommate were dating and, and we were around each other a lot. And so I told her every gory story about my life. And if I thought, you know, I was going to marry her one day, I probably wouldn't have told her all that stuff. But in the beginning we were, we were just friends. So I, I was an open book and she was too. And it didn't scare her away or it didn't scare me away. And so we, started to get a little more intimate and uh but it was not an exclusive relationship so at least we hadn't made any rules that i knew of so one time she was at the house and another girl called me and i kind of had a short conversation that's back it wasn't cell phone days you know right back when the phone was on the wall and uh so anyway uh she's like who's that <laughs> and i said who it was and she said take me home Ooh. and uh so I was like, okay, I guess I better take her home. So we're driving to her house. She goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm taking you home. She goes, I don't want to go home. And I said, oh, gosh. Yes, we're taking you home. <laughs> so I'm, I'm totally confused. And basically, she just laid down in the law and said, if you want to be with me, it's going to be just me and no one else. Mm. And so I got a little teary-eyed there and, and said, you know, it was kind of a moment of truth as far as making the call. <laughs> Uh, and I, had, I made the right call and decided to date exclusively. And not too long after that, you know, I told her, I said, if I ever tell you I love you, I'm telling you I want to marry you. Because mm. I learned over the dating years, you, you tell a girl you love her, it changes everything. And don't do it unless you're serious. And uh, so w one time I, I told her, uh, eventually I told her I loved her and she knew what that meant. And uh, we got married. I guess '87, but uh, I better know that, right? Yeah, that's, that's kind of how I got started. A good date to have in your head. Yeah, and, I, and I, I'll say this: I would highly recommend becoming best friends before you become intimate, because yeah. uh, it comes in handy when you're an empty nester. Like right now, we're having, the, we're having the best time of our married life as empty nesters and grandparents. We're still madly in love with each other, and we like each other too. Mm, that's fantastic. Yeah, Ellen, Ellen and I, um, this will be 41 years this December for oh, us. It, it's the first relationship that ever snuck up on me because it was a friendship. And right. um, yeah. actually a mutual friend had to sit me down and go, you idiot, do you not see? I mean, you are, <laughs> you are in love with Ellen Balmer. And I'm like, no, we're best friends. <laughs> it's like right. the same thing for us now, empty nesters and, uh, we just got back late last night from vacation in in uh, Alaska, and uh, there's just Beautiful. nothing better than hanging out with your best friend. That's for sure. I, I love no the way the prominent role that Catherine has in your autobiography. Um, you know, you really you really honor her. Um, you show great great respect for her, especially in kind of the ongoing battle of your life of fear versus faith um, several times when right. she just spoke the right words 
in the oh, yeah. in the right moment. Um, let me let me just read a paragraph because I think a lot of us guys need to be reminded of this. You you said. God gave us our wives for a reason, and one of those reasons involves opening our tunnel-visioned minds to see things from a different perspective. We are so conditioned to be proud, so sure that we're right, so naturally resistant to critique, and so stubborn in the direction of our choices, we often tend to resent or at best minimize the kinds of perspectives our wife gives. We don't see how they, not being in the middle of our world, on an all-day, everyday basis, could possibly contribute an insight that we hadn't already seen ourselves. Um, I just, I just got to tell you, um, the Holy Spirit used those words. Um, that's the area I got to grow in with with my <laughs> wife. To be perfectly honest, I, I remember the night before our wedding, my dad said, "Hey, um, Ellen will consistently come to the right conclusion using all the wrong processes." And if you pick <laughs> apart her logic, you you will forfeit one of the greatest sources of wisdom God's trying to give you in your life. That's pretty awesome. Isn't that awesome? And That's um, awesome. man, I just chew. There, there there's there's some progress needed in our relationship with that. One. <laughs> so thank you for that, my friend. Um, well, she she saved my. Uh, I please that you know when when I was with at Florida State, we had. We're transitioning to the Charlie Ward era, and uh, under center and under and under traditional offense, we just he struggled. I mean, he's throwing the interceptions left and right, and but we'd get into our two minute drill in the shotgun and going quick in between plays and a two minute drill. He was magical, huh. and she, and so when that happened, a couple games where we'd get behind and because he was struggling, then he'd get we'd get in a two minute drill and. And come back and win. My wife's like, "Why don't you just start the game in that thing?" You know, and I was like, uh, "That's not a bad idea." And uh, so we ended up uh, playing a game against Maryland, where we started in the like a two-minute drill from the first snap, and uh, we had like 850 yards of offense and scored every time we touched the ball. But I teased that you know it was her idea, but really she. She made that observation, and I'm like, you know, that's probably not a bad idea. It uh, changed everything for uh, Florida State and for me. Mm, 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 mm. So eventually uh, you get here to Georgia, um, make a long-term commitment. I, I, I love the part in the story. Was, was it Pitt that you were looking at or someplace else? And, yes. And, but you really said, wherever I go, I, I, want, I want that to be someplace where we can raise a family, um, where we can make a long-term commitment, and the opportunity at Georgia came up, and and you took it. And you know, if, right. if um, as a, as a fan, just watching you from the outside, if I had to characterize um, what I saw a, as a fan, would be just an incredible degree of calm, uh, unflappable, not not panicking. I know that got misinterpreted a lot of times by your critics sure. as, as oh, I don't think he. Maybe he doesn't care enough. Maybe he doesn't really know how to motivate um, people. Um, you know, but but that calm was part of it. Just the integrity of of wanting to do things right and and um, you know not not cutting any corners. But maybe more than anything else, um, your program was characterized by loyalty. You know, demanding it from the players to be sure. But a lot of people see loyalty as a one way street. 
Um, but with you, Coach, the, the street ran both ways and probably ran from you to the players and your staff first. Uh, where, did you, where did you get your high view of loyalty? Where did that come from? Well, my experience at Florida State being there, uh, actually, I think it was 15 seasons out of 16. I did have the one year at East Carolina. But being under Coach Bowden and watching him operate, the way he did, and um, you know, we had we would have what he called a hideaway, where we would before the season started, we we would hide away in a in a place away from the office, and we would just sit there and talk philosophy and talk about offense, defense, special teams, uh, but uh, but a lot just about how we're going to operate as a program, and uh, actually, his number one item in, in the uh, hideaway was loyalty. He said, sometimes there'll be, there'll be times that you've got to be loyal to me and there'll be times where I have to be loyal to you. And he said, but I will say this, if you cheat, I'm not going to be loyal to that. Mm. And I was like, wow, this is, this is awesome. And I'm in the right spot. And, uh, but you know, we loved coach Bowden because he loved us. And he treated us the way he did, and he made sure we made time for our family. He made sure those players knew he cared about them deeply. And, you know, his his goal was to capture the heart of the player and uh, and build a better man. And he felt like if we if we build a better man, we're going to have a better team. Mm. And so I bought into that hook, line, and sinker. And, you know, when you become head coach, sometimes you, a lot of coaches have been at five, six, 10 different places and 10 different ways of doing things. And you're like, well, what did I like here? What did I like there? Well, I had the benefit of basically being in one spot and we went 14 years in the top four in a row, Wow! <laughs> you know? So it, all I knew was the Florida state way, the Bobby Bowden way. And so that's, that's what I took with me to Georgia. And I, I love, I love seeing players come back. Like I, you coach, you coach players early in your time at Florida State, so to speak, and then, you know, eight years later they come back. They're married. They got kids. They, they, they come back to their school and they, and they still see their coach. You know, uh, there's something to that, and I was very attracted to that. So my goal, as you mentioned, was I didn't want to go to Pitt unless we thought that was it. You know, I said. I said, honey, I don't want to go to a place thinking I'm looking for another job one day. I want to go to a place to think this is home for good. Mm-hmm. And by the grace of God, we stayed 15 years in Georgia, and, and we did raise our family here. Uh, and, you know, my mom, dad, brothers, sisters, everybody moved to Athens. They're still here. And I, I live in Athens again uh, as well. So it's it's been wonderful for us. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things in your book that probably hit me the most um, when you were talking about loyalty and that long-term commitment, you know, when a player signs, he's making a four, often five-year commitment with redshirting. And, you know, to to know that that in term, as far as it depends on you, that, that you're going to be there. And there, right. there was just a line in the book that talked about how many of the players – had already had the the number one man in their life disappoint right. them, and right. um, you know just the uh, that really just hit me like like a ton of bricks when I read that and yeah. it said in there that that's one of the reasons you've never changed your cell phone number, 
So right. former players can always find you and talked about right. maybe 25, 30, 40, maybe 50 calls that you get on Father's Day. Um, yeah. What a what a legacy right there of um, being the father figure for a lot of guys. Well, what happened uh, that really drove the point home is I had a defensive coach, defensive coordinator, uh, who decided to take another job, and he and he asked permission to speak to the defense before he left, and it seemed like a good idea. And um, but basically, those conversations are like, "Hey, I love you so much, but uh, you know, and thank you for helping me be where I really want to be, some somewhere else besides with you." And so he didn't quite say it that way, but that's what they heard. And I'm looking in the eyes of these kids, and I and I could tell. Uh, they were hurt. They felt betrayed. They felt that, you know, this guy's leaving them. And, uh, and so, you know, when he was finished, I said, coach, I appreciate you. And uh, if you don't mind stepping out of the room, I want to address the group by myself. And I told him, I said, Hey man, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you right now, I'm here for you. I'm not going anywhere. And I'm going to hire a man that's going to love you just like your last coach did. You know, or even better, but um, you know, just give them that assurance because I would say I know over half of the guys that I had on my roster lived in uh, single parent homes, and, and it's mom, you know, yeah. mom taking care of them. And I can't tell you how many moms came to me in recruiting and just said, I, I can teach my son a lot of things, but I can't teach him how to be a man. Can you do that for me? Mm. Yeah, it may be could, that that is the single greatest impact of your whole coaching career, right? Right there, the, the yeah. guys that you invested in—that's that's amazing. Well, I got us another story. I hate to bore you, but you're not boring me or anybody. Talking about that, talking about that phone number not changing. Yeah, it just how I'm at a speaking engagement within the last month, and uh, I'm sitting at the table with one of my former players, which is common to have a guy at an event that uh, lives in the community. And so uh, he's there with his wife, Trey Battle was his name. And he had a, he was a walk-on who became a scholarship player who played in the NFL and the Cowboys and ended up being with the San Diego Chargers. And, and a teammate of his from college, Paul Oliver, was also a teammate of his at San Diego. And sadly, Paul Oliver took his life, mm-hmm. took his own life. And, uh, and that affected Trey in a big way. And when Trey ended up getting cut and was kind of floundering around, you know, again, going back to that identity, being in what you do, and all of a sudden you get cut. I mean, in football, you get cut as a young man eventually. Uh, Someone's going to say, you're not good enough anymore. Go find something else to do. And he was struggling to the point where he was on a bridge getting ready to jump and end his life. And he said something and his spirit told him to call me mm, and wow. he did. And we talked him into coming to the house and I had former players, former teammates and a team chaplain there. And we just, we just <clears throat> ordered pizza and, and we, uh, talked and about the good old days and, and we just literally talked him off the ledge. And, uh, but he came back to this event. And in the middle of the event, the MC is saying, you know, Coach, you've made an impact in players' lives. We'd like to bring one up. 
on stage and let him tell the story. Well, he tells the story of what happened. And that when I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's telling the story. Mm. And then he cut, then he looked at me and he said, coach, you saved my life. Mm. But that's wow. wild. Wow. Wow. Well, you've had, um, you've had so much success. You've also had some heartbreaks along the way. I know after, after 15 years of Georgia at Georgia, um, at the end of the 2015 season, um, you were told that, uh, UGA was ready to make a change and, right. um, I mean, I know, I know, I heard your speeches. I heard, you know, I read the press releases and all. I, I, again, just so impressed with the class that you handled that with. Um, but, but how are you really feeling inside when, right. when that gig came to an end? Uh, truthfully, I was, I was thankful. Uh, you know, 15 years at a, anywhere is a long time. <laughs> You know, it was, uh, you know, you you know when you sign up for the job that it, it can happen. Uh, very few coaches go through their career and never get let go somewhere along the way. Um, so you knew it was a possibility. And uh, But, you know, I, I chose to think about all the 15 years uh, that we had that were so awesome. And uh, and I was, I was thankful for that experience and uh i was thankful for the people that loved and supported us and you know i knew god was gonna have something for me next i didn't know what it was but i was kind of looking forward to see what that was my my goal was to take a rest i needed i really needed time off is what i needed but within about a week i was head coach in miami so <laughs> um that yeah, was you very weren't smart. very good at uh retirement as it turns out <laughs> No, I didn't last very long, but uh, anyway, it, I I know that uh, the other thing that was nice is I got a chance to say goodbye to the team in a team meeting, and I probably hugged every one of them on the way out the door. And there's some good closure there, which uh, which was was much needed for me and probably for the boys. Mm. Yeah, a lot of time is not the not the case, unfortunately. Um, you know, and then three years head coach at Miami, um, retired right. after the 2018 season there, <clears throat> um, took on a role as a football analyst with the ACC network. Um, I, I will say you are excellent at that as well. And um, I, I think you broaden the appeal of football far beyond football because of this, just this parallel that it's about, this game, but it's also about life and, um, you know, that, that combination of faith and family and football, um, that comes through even in your work as an analyst. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. You know, as, as you and I are talking today, it's, it's October 21st. Um, and you've got a lot of anniversaries that you want to celebrate. Probably two years ago today is not one of those anniversaries. Um, tell tell our listeners um, how your world got rocked um, two years right. ago today. Well, I'm retired for a little while, um, and 
when I retired from Miami, I, I was experiencing a, a fatigue level. I mean, when you coach, you're tired. That's just the way it is. Yeah. And, and they're every, every, everybody's tired, you know. Everybody works hard. So not just coaches. I know that. But, you know, with, in, the, in the coaching profession, you know, I, I coached 35 years. I don't think I missed – I don't think I missed one day, but towards the end of my time at Miami, I was experiencing a fatigue that was like nothing else I had experienced. I I described it as as an extreme fatigue uh, to where I was thinking if I keep going at this pace, something really bad's going to happen. And uh, so I didn't think I was just physically able to continue to be what Miami needed. And so I stepped down for my, my health sake and for the university's sake. And so a few months later, uh, I, uh, my wife and I are going through our little routine. We, we moved on to the beach. We had dreamed of being on the beach for years. And so we're in the beach in uh, Destin, Florida, we'd walk a half an hour to the gym and I'd do a little old man, you know, weightlifting routine and then we'd walk back a half an hour and that was the kind of way we started our day and so I'm, I'm in there doing the very last set of some shoulder shrugs and uh instead of 15 I got to about 12 and I I just hit a wall and uh I felt like I had to sit down and try to catch my breath and so I'm trying to catch my breath and that when that's happening I start sweating and then I start getting nauseous and I'm thinking that gummit, honey, those vitamins you made me take in the morning are upsetting my stomach. And but it got it got worse and worse to the point where I, I was like, I need to go to the boys' room. So I go to the locker room and do whatever I got to do. And uh, and then another gentleman walked in and needed to use the facility. So I got out of the bathroom stall and went on the bench in the locker area and was try, still trying to catch my breath and. And I was still sweating bad, and I'm thinking, man, I'm I'm in trouble. So I called out help, and the guy that was there was already in and out, so it was crickets. It was quiet, and no one was in the locker room but me. And I'm like, I got to get to where the people are, or I'm not going to make it. And so I walked these 52 steps uh, through the sauna and the steam room area, and and uh, the longest walk of my life, I can promise you. And uh, I got into the gym and called out for help and ambulance comes and I go to the hospital and I'm on the, before, right before I roll into the operating table, you know, I say, I want to see my wife, you know, and I told her I loved her and I, I didn't know this was it or not. I, I had pretty much numb. By then I was having a heart attack. And, um, as it turned out, I had two, 100, one, two arteries, hundred percent blocked. One being the Widowmaker. Well, anyway, I'm in there, and they're working on me, but I'm conscious because my blood pressure went so low, they were afraid to put me out. And and even the EMTs were waiting with the little shot machine in case I coded, which is wow. code for dying. So anyway, as it's going on, there's a voice saying, what are you feeling, Coach? And I was, my body was beginning to go numb, you know, limb by limb. And eventually my arms, my legs, and eventually my head went numb. And I couldn't breathe still. I could hear myself gasping for air. And my eyes were closed, but I could still see the light, you know, through your eyelids when you're in the operating table. You could understand how that 
feels. But then, it, then all of a sudden, it was as if everything blacked out. So it was everything went numb, everything went black, and that's so I'm thinking this is it, this is the end. And um, and you know what I felt? I felt peace. I knew where I was going. I was excited actually where I was going. I was like, here I come, Jesus. And uh and then a little moment after that, I hear, Wake up and uh I didn't know if it was Satan or Jesus, but <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh it was the doctor, but uh anyway. I wake up and uh, I end up making it. But um, you know, to to feel that peace when you knew it was the end or could be the end was just such a wonderful feeling for me. I was so thankful for the experience, not that so much that God uh, saved me, you know, from this heart attack, from death, just the peace that I felt, you know, the faith in, from 1986 was real. And, and I've never doubted that, but you kind of get to that moment of truth and you're thinking, man, I wonder what I'll feel, but I was truly at peace and so thankful for that. And, and I'm not saying if someone is close to death and they're afraid of dying, they're not a believer. I'm not saying that for a right, second. Of course. But in my spirit, I'm, I'm at peace. But in the distance, I can hear my body still gasping for air. So God designs our body to survive and, and to live. But in my spirit, I was in a whole different place. And I really uh, was so thankful for that. Mm. So God said... Uh... Not done with you yet, Coach. Not done. Not done. That's right. I know right. Um, earlier this year, you, after making a full recovery from that really severe right. heart attack and what for so many people is is fatal when it's that particular artery, um, but got the news, the diagnosis of Parkinson's. Um, right. How did you... How did you come to know that? I know you had suspicions. Right. Just you'd watched your dad struggle with yes. that. Um, but but how did that diagnosis come? Well, I had hip surgery, had hip replacement of, uh, um, of my right hip. I, I had my left done like seven, eight, ten years earlier. But and as I'm rehabbing, uh, the rehab just was taking forever, and uh, you know my balance and you know, my muscle rigidity and I felt like I was sluggish all the time. And so I'm thinking, you know, I need to go to my primary care doctor. And I, and I was suspecting Parkinson's and he was too. He got me to a neurologist locally and then to a specialist later, two months later. And by the time I got to the specialist, two months after I was pretty sure I had it, you know, he told me what I already knew and, and that I had Parkinson's. So, uh, so I had time to kind of process it, the possibility of having it for a few months. Well, I think that was healthy. If I if I went to my primary care and he immediately said you got Parkinson's, that might have been a huge yeah. blow, but uh, and a shock to my to my brain and my spirit. But by the time I got, I was told by the specialist that I had it, it was I'd already made peace with it, you know, and and I ended up tweeting it out. Because, you know, I'd be at a speaking engagement and I'd be moving slow or my balance wasn't right or it looked like my back was hurting. And everybody kept asking me the question, what's wrong, basically? Mm. And I got tired of feeding them a bunch of junk about it. Well, my hip surgery, you know, it's taking a while. And, 
And uh, so I said, I'm just going to tell everybody at the same time. So I got on Twitter and, and basically said that I had it, but I viewed it as a momentary light affliction compared to the glory that's coming. That glorified body I'm going to get that has no sin and has no disease. The body that I'm going to get that's going to match up with the spirit and soul uh, that became right with God when I, be, when I became a believer. And, uh, you know, so, and that's how I see it. And so when peace was the number one joy of being a Christian in me when I first became a believer, and even through my heart attack, the key word for me now is hope. You know, I mean, if, if my hope was only in temporal things, things of this earth, what do I have to look forward to? Well, I've got a progressive disease that sometimes people become a prisoner in their own body and they get to the point where they can't even swallow anymore and it's over. You know, but that's all I got to look forward to on this earth. Uh, that's kind of a sad commentary, but I have the hope in my eternal glory with, with, with God because of what he's going to give me, uh, when I get there. And, uh, so. I have a lot of hope because I, my hope is in eter eternal things, not, not temporal things. Mm. Well, I cannot think of a better place to land this conversation than, than right there. You know, one of the things you're known for coach is, is telling players um, when they played for you and during the rest of their life, finish the drill, finish the drill. Yeah. And um, now you're getting a chance to, to model that. And it's not what you or, or Catherine or anybody else who loves you would have chosen, but it's, uh, it's, it's part of life. And right. I, I thank you for the ministry that you're continuing to have for me and a whole lot of other people who are, who are watching from the bleachers as uh, you teach us how to, how to live and how to finish the drill. So thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for that. Thank you for this conversation again yes, I, I could not give a higher endorsement to the book make the call by mark richt uh, football fans will love it um, even if you roll your eyes when your spouse or significant other flips to a football game or multiple games on saturday you will love this book because it's also about faith it's about family and there's plenty of football to keep people like me happy as well. Um, Coach, thank you so much for being with us today. You know, every time we get together on Step Into the Story, this is exactly the conversation that we hope to have. And this is why our ministry, Walk Through the Bible, exists. Um, if, if you are struggling with anything, um, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. If, if God has used this conversation in your life to uh, spark some questions or stimulate some growth, you can email me at phil at walkthrough.org. That's W-A-L-K-T-H-R-U dot O-R-G. And um, we look forward to the next time we get together on Step Into the Story. Coach, thank you so much um, for just opening up your life today with us. I enjoyed it, Phil. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Step Into the Story podcast, powered by Walk Through the Bible. We'd love to hear what you think by giving us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Also, don't miss a single episode by clicking the subscribe button. If you'd like more resources to help you explore and live God's word in your daily life, 
visit walkthrough.org. That's W-A-L-K-T-H-R-U dot O-R-G. Walk through the Bible. Take a walk. Change the world.